Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Today on Lit Health, we have Raj Rakhtwani with us. And Raj is the Vice President of Scientific Affairs for the MedStar Health Research Institute. He's also the Director of the MedStar Health National Center for Human Factors in Healthcare and an Associate Professor at the Georgetown University of School of Medicine, in addition to being just an all-around great guy. He also has extensive expertise in patient safety, human cognition, usability, digital health technologies, and data science, and is an active applied researcher serving as a principal investigator on numerous grants and contracts, including five research project grants, R01 awards from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which are among some of the most prestigious grants. Raj's research has been funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, National Institutes of Health, the Pew Charitable Trust, and other industry partners. His work has been published in high-impact journals such as the Journal of the American Medical Association and Health Affairs and has influenced both policy and frontline clinical practice. His research has also been featured by Politico, Fortune, Kaiser Health News, NPR, and many other media outlets. He has served on federal advisory committees and testified to the U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. He holds a doctorate in human factors and applied cognition and was a National Research Council postdoc fellow at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. In addition to all that, he enjoys spending time with his family, traveling, distance running, and playing tennis. Raj, thank you so much for joining us on Lit Health today. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise with the audience. And um, let's just kick it off by talking about the research that you've been doing at MHRI around patient safety in uh, the EMR and what your focus has been over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tracy, thanks, thanks for having me. It's always nice to connect and, and share. So for the over a decade now, a lot of my research is focused on the safety of the electronic health record or the electronic medical record. We call it the EHR, EMR for short. And our research has really been focused on this really big patient safety challenge that has emerged, which is the way that these technology systems, these interfaces are designed, really doesn't meet how physicians, nurses, and others do their work. And so when physicians, nurses, and other care providers are using these technologies, they can make a lot of errors, there can be a lot of mistakes, and that ends up having direct patient safety implications. So what that means is, there can be times where a provider is using the computer to, let's say, place a medication order for you, and maybe they click the wrong medication, or maybe they select the wrong dose, 
or maybe they even select the wrong patient entirely. And so what happens is those errors can go uncaught and they can directly impact you and your loved ones. So you might end up with the wrong medication, the wrong dose, all kinds of issues arise. And that's happening not because that provider wants to make a mistake. It's happening because the technology sometimes is so poorly designed or so complex that it happens. And so that's kind of where our research is focused for, for really 10 plus years. So, you know, I know in the patient safety world, a lot of times people are motivated to jump in because of a personal story or something yeah. that happened to a loved one, right? But what really made you choose to focus on this area? Was it because of problems and pitfalls that you were seeing yourself or other people that you care about? It was, it's a great question. It was actually a culmination of things. So my background is I'm formally trained in, in a science called human factors, and we focus on understanding how systems, devices, other things are designed and how that impacts how people do their work. So if you think about how usually well-designed your car display is, if you drive, you know, it's easy for you to understand how fast you're going. It's easy for you to turn your car on and off. It's easy for you to understand when you're out of fuel. In fact, the light will pop up and tell you that you're low on fuel. So that's kind of my, my scientific background. And I spent many years working in the defense industry and in 2012, really wanted to do something different and find a field where I was better aligned with really helping, helping people in a different way. And so I came to healthcare. And 2012 was essentially the time that the use of electronic health records really picked up. So that was one big factor. So all of a sudden, this technology was being adopted in healthcare. The second big factor was, as I came and started working at Menster Health, physicians, nurses, and others across the country were talking about how difficult these systems were to use. And in fact, on the cover of most major media outlets would be stories about the difficulty of using these technologies and patient stories of how their physician is not even looking at them anymore because their head is in the computer. And then the piece that really pushed it for me, you know, it always ties back to family for me, was my mother. So my mother's a physician. That time she was in her 60s. She's a primary care physician that works in these certain clinics in downtown Los Angeles with populations that really need a lot of help. And I call her every Sunday. I'm based on the East Coast. She's based in Southern California. And most conversations, she would share stories about how she's helped different patients and patients she's concerned about, really kind of just sharing. And in 2012, that all shifted. And every Sunday was her really complaining, I say complaining, but expressing how challenging it was to use the electronic health record. And she's certainly not, you know, our tech savvy genius, but she's good enough to use the iPad to FaceTime with her grandchildren, she should be able to effectively use a computer to do her work. And these are exactly the kinds of physicians that we want to keep in medicine, right? We want the experienced physicians that deeply care about our patients to stay in medicine. And every conversation was her talking about how challenging the computer is to use, how she's staying up later at night to document information. And that really pushed me over the edge to say, I got to get in here and use my expertise that I have to see if I can help. So that was, that was really the big driver. I love it. I love it. I remember you saying that your mom was a physician. I didn't realize she was out in LA and, and working yeah. with patients that were most at risk. That, that's cool. Yeah. She's, she's fantastic. Now retired. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't believe yeah. we both around MedStar for that long. It's right. So in addition to the medication safety and in in addition to physicians having a, a rough time kind of adopting the new technology, how else are patients at risk due to the technology that's now growing every day in the in me medical environment? 
Yeah. So a, a little bit more history on kind of, you know, what's what's happened here. So in in 2009, there was a bill passed called the High Tech Act. And it stands for the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health. So remember, that was the time of significant economic challenge. And what the White House administration and Congress decided at the time was this was a good opportunity for us to advance and essentially digitize medicine and also spur the economy. And so they put $40 billion into the adoption of this technology. And it was a grand plan that made a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of benefits to using electronic health records. If you think about previous to 2009, most of us had paper-based records. And paper-based records means if I am, uh, let's say, I get my care in Northern Virginia and my paper record is sitting in the office there, and then I travel to see my family in Southern California, and I end up in the emergency department in Southern California, there's no way they're getting that information from that paper record in a timely fashion. You can imagine how many phone calls would have to be made, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea was let's digitize medicine, and that way we can have this information at our fingertips. We can transfer information more quickly. We can make smarter systems. So that was sort of what was envisioned. And by the way, that $40 billion mostly went to the developers of the technology. So if we think about how that money flowed, it was a significant investment that went into several of these different companies. So now what's happened, well, I, I talked a little bit about how what we call the usability of the electronic health record is challenging. So that is the way it's designed is not intuitive for the experts that use it. The visual displays are cluttered. It means it's hard to find things. You know, if you think about for most of us, many of us use Amazon to order things. We can order something in one click. It's cake. You think about your experience when you check into a hotel, you think about your ability to book your own flight. We really have gotten used to, as we should, to this very easy process of ordering things and doing things. That is not how the electronic health record is designed in any way. Think about your most cluttered, complex, frustrating moment using a system, and that's basically the electronic health record. So one big issue has been how that usability impacts our provider's ability to do their work. And that's where we get the errors like wrong patient errors, wrong medications, et cetera. That's just one part of it. Another big challenge has been around what's called interoperability. So interoperability is the way that a computer system and the network shares information. So I gave that example of, well, if I live in Northern Virginia and then I go visit California, my information should be readily available. That was the grand vision. Really not the case. What's happened is as these companies have built up these systems, they've essentially siloed the data, meaning even in a geographic area, if I go to two different hospitals inside of Northern Virginia, sometimes it's very difficult to get my information across. And so what that's done is it's introduced additional patient safety risks, right? Because now my information is not readily available to a physician or nurse that may need it. Information about, let's say, if I had allergies, past procedures, et cetera, is not there. So that's the interoperability challenge. And then the third one, unfortunately, what we've seen is, remember, these are software systems. And what we're seeing is that sometimes they're very, very poorly coded. They're very poorly built. And so there can actually be malfunctions in the technology itself that can go undetected. So, you know, imagine you're placing your Amazon order and you want to order a new toy for a friend's child. So you type it, you enter one and you submit your order. And all of a sudden your child ends up with a hundred toys. 
So what happened there? Well, there's a complete malfunction inside of the system. It added two zeros to your order. That actual error has happened inside of an electronic health record where the decimal point gets ignored when a medication order is placed. So let's say someone's ordering something for five grams of a medication. That turns into 50. That could kill somebody. So there's straight malfunctions that are also an issue. And those are probably the top three things I would, I would highlight that actually are serious issues that are impacting patient safety. So what are the obstacles to correcting that, you know, to making the tech environment safe for patients and providers within the health system? It's a big question. <laughs> you know, so many people have been working on this for the last 10 years. And I will say things are certainly improving and I'm an optimist. And so continually try to look forward to address this well, we need to have all of the different stakeholders coming together and they need to be incentivized with a shared vision of improving patient safety. And so when I say all the stakeholders, what I mean is we need the people that are running the healthcare facilities, right? The people that are sort of the business folks behind healthcare and healthcare facilities. Of course, we need our patients, we need and their families, caregivers, we need our providers, we need the actual technology developers, and we need government because government has put in certain policies that often are in the right spirit, the spirit of doing the right thing or incentivizing the appropriate way, but sometimes they're not exactly optimized. And so I think if we take those five groups and we can get representatives together in a forum to move some of these things, we would make big advancements. And there's precedent for this. So if you take a look, for example, in the aviation industry, now, arguably, an industry that looks forward on safety and has done such a terrific job of making sure that anytime we get on an airplane, there are certain procedures, policies, et cetera, in place and has a fantastic safety record. Anytime there is a major aviation incident, they have a group that comes together that represents industry and federal uh, lawmakers, et cetera, come together and work to solve the problem. And then there's bodies like the National Transportation Safety Board that will have a group of experts that will provide a report that has recommendations that will concretely address safety. And so from an industry perspective, it's one that's looking forward. It's one that needs to, wants to keep our skies safe. You can say the same thing for the, for the automotive industry. That didn't always used to be the case, but the automotive industry, you think about how much innovation there is around safety. So when you get into any modern vehicle now, you typically have airbags typically have a rear view camera, you typically have a sensor that lights up when you have a car in your blind spot. And not only that, if you were to try and turn your vehicle into that car, usually it has some kind of lane deviation guidance that pulls your car back, right? So think about how much advancement that is and research is going into keeping the driver and those passengers safe. We don't really have anything like that in healthcare. And specifically as these types of electronic health records and other technologies come up, the complexity of this is growing and we don't have the right infrastructure to actually address all these patient safety issues. So I think a, a group like that is very much necessary. Yeah, I remember going to HIMSS as it's changed over the years and talking to vendors that all had a new piece of software to add to the system. And I thought, well, how is that making it easier for anybody? Like how is another add-on making it better? Even though they were talking about, you know, social determinants of health or something very, very important, you know, how are we connecting all those dots? What, if anything, has really changed to make the EMR safer since you've been working in this space? There's been a, 
a big push by several researchers, policymakers, some industry folks to advance safety. It's been, in my opinion, it's been slower than we'd like, but there's still been some advancements. So I'll, I'll highlight a few of those things. One is there, there have been some policy changes from the federal government, specifically the Office of the National Coordinator is the, is the name of the group that oversees electronic health records. They've made some policy adjustments to, to make it a little bit more rigorous in terms of EHR vendors getting their products certified that then get used by our healthcare providers. There used to be something called a gag clause in most of the contracts that were signed between EHR vendors and our healthcare providers. And that gag clause essentially made it essentially illegal or a violation of the contract if those healthcare facilities, providers, doctors, nurses shared information about a safety issue. The federal government has essentially banned those gag clauses. So that's a very big advancement. And I remember you tell me about that. Yeah, it's just, I can't even, I'm almost speechless when I think about it. Like, why on earth would you want to make it so that people can't share critical safety information? And of course, the argument was, this protects our intellectual property and protects innovation. And at the end of the day, I've seen most of these interfaces. There's not a whole lot that's innovative there. And certainly, we should be prioritizing patient safety, I, I would think. That's one big area of advancement. Another area has been that several different researchers, practitioners have come up with all kinds of different safety tests and guidelines. And that's been a really good thing. So these safety checklists, these guidelines, et cetera, are essentially a way for a healthcare facility to evaluate whether their system is, is safe or not. So these include things like the leapfrog tool for assessing what's called clinical decision support. So are these rules that the HR alerts that the HR might fire or initiate, are they actually working appropriately? So for example, let's say I'm the patient and I'm allergic to penicillin and that's documented in my electronic health record. If the physician tries to then prescribe penicillin, a smart electronic health record would put up an alert or a warning to say to the physician, by the way, this patient's allergic to penicillin, we shouldn't be prescribing that. And we want to make sure that all those different complex rules are functioning appropriately. And so these, these types of tests or assessments help to make sure that that's the case. And so that's, that's been a really, really big advancement as well is the ability to better assess. And then we've seen a little bit of a, a better adoption of guidelines that we have specifically for the developers of the technology around improving the usability and safety. I think that's an area where there still needs to be a tremendous amount of advancement. I think that's probably where we're lagging the most. Part of it is because these software systems are very, very complex. I think part of it also is because there's not necessarily the greatest incentive to make these big changes to these technologies. And so that's an area where I think we have to come together and, and really prioritize that and make the big initiatives, that the big changes that we need to make. And it's more than just medication safety, right? I mean, you're using that as a very tangible example. Yeah. But it, it's bigger than that. I mean, do you want to give another type of potential pitfall or poor outcome? Because yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, 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 unfortunately, there's so many. We often come to medications, Tracy, as you highlighted, because those can be the most severe. They can also be the most frequent. We've seen horrific issues where patients' lab results get lost. So let's say you go and have a, an X-ray, an MRI, you get a lab result, and that ideally that if it's what's called a critical result, if it's way out of the ordinary abnormal, that should be communicated to your primary physician or other immediately. And all that information should be stored and should have what's called closed loop communication. Meaning if I go to a specialist 
they order this test, I go then go get tested, that result should be communicated back to the specialist and the specialist should acknowledge that that test has been seen. Otherwise, it can fall through the cracks, right? So imagine you go and have this test done. It's an abnormal result. You don't get the result back and nobody else does, or you get the result back, but it's delayed and it ends up being a very abnormal finding that can be very catastrophic for patients. And so this kind of idea of closed loop communication and being able to seek critical results in a timely fashion is, is another big issue that unfortunately happens. And we've just seen some horrific results across the country from that. We've also seen issues where there's a concrete one of a, a patient, this was a young boy that was playing basketball, scratched his arm, wasn't feeling well later that night. His family, his parents took him to the emergency department. He had all of this lab work done. And when the lab results came back to the physician on the computer display in the electronic health record, instead of, so this, this typical lab result would have 14 different results. So imagine 14 slots displayed on the interface. It only showed 13 of the 14 and it didn't show a, a pending order or anything like that, right? Instead of 14, it's just showing 13. Imagine a busy emergency department. So what does the physician do? The physician looks at the 13 elements sees that they're all normal, discharges the patient. Well, it turns out that this particular value that wasn't returned or displayed on the interface until later on was a critical abnormal result. And the young boy ended up dying from sepsis several days later. And so that's the kind of thing that you look at and it's just horrific. I mean, that's a easily addressable design issue. You could make it so that the display just says pending. So the physician then knows that this 14th element's not back from the lab yet and I can't discharge this patient. But to expect that the physician would sit there and count every single time to make sure all the elements there is just unreasonable, uh, especially when you think about how high volume the emergency departments are and how many patients that physician is seeing. So in, in that situation, you know, the DHR vendor and others should be working incredibly hard to make it so that it's easy for our physicians and other providers to, to see the information that they need. Yeah. And I, I like what you said earlier. I mean, this has become big business, right? Med tech is a huge industry now. It's blown up just in the decade that, you know, I've been watching it myself. And to have people who understand the environment involved in creating the technology moving forward and in the past, but we're here today. So we got to go forward, right? Yeah. I think is is so critical about how we design for the future. And that's kind of like where I'd I want to jump next is everybody's talking about artificial intelligence without really understanding what it means or, you know, what it's doing and with the speed at which it's now moving, because it's been there all along in the background, learning and accumulating data. What are your concerns about artificial intelligence in the healthcare system? <laughs> it's a big question. And I think we're still learning so much. As you mentioned, Tracy, artificial intelligence is as a field has been here for a very, very long time. And what's now happened is almost the like the usability of the artificial intelligence, the way that we as ordinary people can now interact with it has changed just in the last, you know, 12 to 24 months. And now that's opened our eyes to all these different application areas. And I think we're still learning what all those different application areas are. So I think it's, I can, you know, I can answer from what I understand now, and, and certainly the stands are being void and obsolete in, in a month or even a day, but uh, we'll certainly do our best. So from my perspective, there's a few things that I think we, we need to be very smart about. One is, I think most people have heard that 
the artificial intelligence, these different algorithms, systems, I'm going to use the word AI system, essentially, the way that these are developed is they rely on an underlying data source. You know, so if you are, let's say, building, many people have interacted with something like ChatGPT, which is a large language model. There's also technologies that might inform clinical decision-making or alert a physician or a nurse to something that, that might happen. All of that relies on an underlying data source. So let's take the example of an AI system that's going to help with a diagnosis. That system has to be based on data from hopefully lots of different patients. And that system is only going to be typically as good as the data underlying the AI system itself. And so one big potential issue is around health equity and diversity. So if we don't have the right data sources behind those algorithms. Let's say the algorithm is based largely off of a certain population, a certain patient population. It may not be applicable to another one. So that's one big issue. The other big one is an issue called drift. And so the idea behind drift is you build an AI system that is going to help you with diagnosis. And when you're testing that AI system in your laboratory or even as it gets integrated into the electronic health record or into the clinical environment, if that algorithm is learning and changing over time. And it may change in a way that we can't predict, that we don't know about. And all of a sudden, it may not be diagnosing appropriately. It may change the way because of the data that it's being fed and learning from, it may become lower accuracy of diagnosis. And if we don't monitor that and watch that, that means now it's actually doing a disservice to our providers and to our patients. And so what we're going to have to do is come up with some really smart ways of making sure that we are monitoring these algorithms. So things like drift are caught as soon as possible. Ideally, they will need to happen. And we have to make sure that these clinical algorithms have the right data sources that are underlying or leading to the development of them so that we have safe and equitable care for everybody. So those are, those are just two big challenges. And there's going to be, and there's many more that are coming up. I think that an important step for us is going to be to really establish some ground rules as to, to what we're going to accept and what we want to be shaping our care. And that is where it's so important that, again, we have all stakeholders there and especially patients, because at the end of the day, these algorithms are intended to improve patient care. And if they're leaving us as patients uncomfortable or doing a disservice to our care, it sort of feeds the purpose. And, and we should go back to where we were or just pause and rethink how we're doing this. Yeah. You mentioned the last time we spoke, President Biden's executive order on artificial intelligence. Can you summarize that? I mean, are you really familiar with it? I am. Yeah. I spent uh, the last plane ride I had reading through all of it. So I I'm familiar with it, and that I'd highly recommend that that people take a look at it, or at least a summary of it. It covers all aspects of artificial intelligence, and I'll just highlight one or two key pieces as it relates to healthcare. And first, I'd say, you know, I really applaud the Biden administration and others that supported the creation of this document for being so proactive. And it's a fairly comprehensive, complex thing that they're trying to do in terms of preparing the nation and especially the federal government thinking through the safety, application, usability, et cetera, of artificial intelligence, thinking about people and our workforce and patient. So that is not easy to do. And it's particularly not easy to be proactive on those kinds of things 
And so it's, that's a huge advancement in and of itself. And the hope, of course, is that this is also going to enable resources, all the different federal agencies and, and others to, to do this work. The big piece that I'll really highlight from the healthcare perspective is that there's a strong focus on patient safety in that document. And that's, that's a really great thing to see. And so one of the things that it says in there in the next 365 days, which we're already into because the, the executive order came out a few weeks ago, that the Secretary of Health and Human Services will work with others to create essentially a patient safety framework or infrastructure to address issues related to artificial intelligence. And it explicitly calls out work with patient safety organizations, which are safe harbor entities that collect patient safety event reports, as well as other stakeholders to essentially find a way to collect information on AI-related patient safety issues, analyze that information, and disseminate it out and so that we, we have a framework to make improvement and, and capture these issues. So I see that as a, as a very positive thing. It's something that all of us are thinking about, and hopefully this will enable the resources to, to do that. There's several other pieces of AI that touch healthcare that are covered in there. To me, that's the piece that stood out the most. And, you know, if we think about, unfortunately, patient safety is not always top of mind for people. And so to see that explicitly called out in executive order, I think is, is fantastic. Yeah, I like the fact that they're at least thinking ahead, sort of thinking ahead. But, you know, again, we know this has been going on for a long time. So we have, I guess now is now. Let's just, <laughs> right. we're moving ahead. Yeah. Um, and, and Tracy, I'll actually just, I'll just add to that. Well, let me just add this piece too. So that we should keep in mind that that's the federal government trying to, to move on this. And that's big, right? Federal government's a big body. Our individual healthcare facilities, other groups need to step up to the plate here also and need to start thinking very proactively. And so I just want to highlight that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be waiting on the federal government here. We should be doing things inside of our own organizations to stay ahead of this. Absolutely. I mean, the people who are making money from it were waiting for guidance from the federal government to get moving on it, right? They knew. Yeah. They saw the opportunity. Tangential to that. We need people skilled who can look into the environment and say, this algorithm isn't accurate. What types of jobs, what types of schooling? I have nieces and nephews in college, and I, I told them, if you can find a course on AI, take it now, because if they're not offering it, it's going to be the rest of your career. It's not going away. What do you need? Like, if you could hire three people to help you with this, what would their titles be and what would their skill set be? Well, first, I think you're highlighting one of the, the biggest challenges that we're going to face as a country. And again, this is a piece that is covered, I think, in several different ways in Biden's AI executive order. There's an underlying thread there about the workforce and knowledge gaps and not displacing the workforce, which is also obviously an important issue because there's many people that are concerned. There are many people that are concerned that as AI rolls out, that people are going to be jobless, that it's going to take over their, their roles. So this piece that you're highlighting is, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face, especially in healthcare. If you think about our workforce inside different healthcare systems, healthcare facilities, the majority of those folks have little to no training in data science, artificial intelligence, computer science, et cetera. Nor should we expect them to because they've been trained in, and highly trained in so many other things. They've been trained in medicine, they've been trained in patient care, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we have this big challenge in front of us because first, 
starting in 2009, the electronic health record rolled out. 95% of healthcare facilities across the country use the electronic health record for pretty much everything. So now we've put a software tool. Everything that we do is based on that software tool. So that's introduced knowledge gap number one. How do I start caring for the software, prepping for it, using it, et cetera? Now we're layering on an even bigger challenge, which is we're going to say, and by the way, in that software system are going to be embedded several different artificial intelligence algorithms that could potentially shape all aspects of your work. So we need to figure out how we are going to improve our workforce's knowledge around all things AI, et cetera, as you're highlighting. And I think there's several different ways that we have to do that. Number one is we need to figure out what are the general principles, theories, et cetera, that our workforce needs to know about. And I don't think we need to ask everybody to be a deep expert in artificial intelligence, but we need to understand the basics of how these different technologies, models, et cetera, work so that we can be generally aware. And we need to be aware of what some of the potential challenges of the technologies might be, and of course, the benefits. Now, so I think about back to my days in in graduate school and, and studying aviation and safety and automation. And there was an early study, really basic study, and unfortunately, I can't remember the authors. And what it essentially showed is that if you take pilots, this was when automation was first coming into aviation, when you look at pilots and the use of automation, if you explain to pilots the basics of how the, the system works, they trust the technology more, they can better diagnose when there's an issue, and they feel safer and more sort of you know, fluent with it. Those that were just given the technology to use without any of that background information have a harder time, can be more dangerous, they can be left out of the loop. And so there's clear precedent for things like trust and all these other important constructs that emerge from this. And so I think number one, getting people the basics of artificial intelligence and how these different algorithms could potentially work without getting into the deep models or the math is going to be very, very important. It's not just healthcare too. It's every industry. It's every industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely every industry. And I think in healthcare, it's going to be potentially particularly challenging for us because we already have highly trained experts that are you know, deep experts in something else. And now we're asking to sort of pivot and think about all these other components. So that's one piece. The other is, I think we need to walk people through different scenarios or simulations so that they're understanding what this technology could potentially do. And importantly, how to understand when there's challenges with the technology. This technology advances, we're going to have issues around trusting the technology and sometimes over-reliance on the technology. So think about when something goes wrong, are we able to then pick back up and and continue our work? And that becomes a really big issue around understanding when those issues are occurring, but also maintaining our expertise in those things that we are now relying on the computer for, because it might not always be there. There could be downtimes or other issues. So I think that's going to be a really big deal. And then I think the third one is really starting to formulate communities of practice and bringing people together so that at an organizational level, people can dive a little bit deeper and specialize a little bit more. So, you know, you and I care deeply about patient safety. There's a whole field and and we can go really deep into the applications of artificial intelligence to advance patient safety and issues around artificial intelligence and how it might negatively impact patient safety. And so creating these communities of practice 
that are going to enable you and I and others to come together and start to specialize a little bit more and go deeper into these topics. I think it's going to be very, very important. And that can happen at an organizational level. It can happen at a national level. There's so many different ways of doing it. But I think those three things are going to be important for us. Yeah, we're still smarter than the robots right now. <laughs> they're, they're not ready for prime time yet. They still need us to guide them. They still, you know, as we were talking about the data coming out is only as good as the data going in. Yeah. Somebody has to be able to recognize that the inaccuracies and in what is being spit out just from that. I mean, I, I don't want to say from that simple of a view, but it, it kind of is. I mean, we're still, I think for me, what I've seen and, you know, the gift of working with tier one and seeing across different types of organizations is that fear or the, or the fear of change is what holds so many people back instead yeah. of jumping in and, and seeing it's not as scary as you might think it is. And you can be part of the solution. You know? Absolutely. To your point, we still need the expertise of the people who are in the environment, providing care on the lines and manufacturing plants or flying planes. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, on that point, this, this kind of idea of over-reliance on technology and really not knowing what happened, what to do when technology goes down is one that, that just keeps me up a lot. And it, it resonates with me. I have my daughters in, in sixth grade and the other day we were talking about just vocabulary and I said, well, go get the dictionary. She's like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and we taught her to use a dictionary, an actual physical dictionary early on, but she had totally forgot, right? And she's like, I just Google it. And I was like, well, what if Google's not there? Go get your dictionary. So now she's upset. She goes to get her dictionary and she's struggling through it. Like, how do I use this dictionary? Well, at the top left corner, that word is the first word at the top left of the page at the top right corner, you know, and you're sort of walking them through this step. And then it just got me thinking about all of these other things that people are not taught today that are important skills should technology go down. The other big one is reading a map. Yeah. She would have no, and I'm not picking on my daughter. I love my daughter, by the way. She, she would, if I said GPS doesn't work, can you go get that paper map? and find where we are, she would really struggle with that. Those are skills that we now don't teach our children. Nowhere in, at least not in our school district, they are not taught how to use an actual physical dictionary. They're not taught how to read complex paper map that probably you and I both kept in the glove compartments and maybe still do in the glove compartments of our car. Take that to medicine and you think about, well, are medical students currently taught how to do dose calculations? I don't know if they are or not. The computer does it. And what we have seen is that when the EHR goes down, because there are downtimes, there are malicious attacks of computer systems that bring them down. We've seen instances where residents don't know how to do the dose calculations anymore because it hasn't been something that they've been practicing, practicing on a regular basis. And so you get into these very difficult situations where we have to figure out what is important for them to learn and stay proficient at while also introducing these technologies that probably 99% of the time are going to be available. But that 1% of the time, it's going to be critical that people know how to fall back on these skills. And that's where the really experienced people excel. Those that have years of experience doing this, that as you said, are willing to also jump in and learn the new thing, they're the most powerful. Because they know the old way and they know the new way. And the folks that are just learning the new way, they're not going to take the time to learn the old way. Yeah. 
So I think it's, it's this interesting phase or period where those folks that have the most experience doing the old things and will change their mentality and take on the new things are actually the super powerful. Yeah. It's, we're in a really interesting time right now. It's, it's the industrial revolution 2.0 or 3.0. And we reached a tipping point with the, you know, generative AI and the AI, I think in the ecosystem that I, I wasn't aware of there was going to be that this tipping point. And I think it's only the beginning now. I think we're going to accelerate even faster. I mean, just that's a hunch, right? Yeah. From someone yeah. not building those things, but just constantly learning and constantly consuming information about things that are interesting, especially when it comes to the future. Talking about partnerships and collaborations, who do you think, I mean, we touched on this a little bit, right? About everybody coming together to kind of solve these problems. Do we need to contain the advances in tech somehow? Do we need more guidelines than we already, you know, the, the executive order is a nice kind of suggestion. And then what about capitalizing on it too? So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Containing yeah. and capitalizing at the same time, I guess. <laughs> I always prefer not to have hard rules in place that tell folks what to do and what not to do. I think that it can be very difficult to structure those in a way that enable innovation and creativity, which are the things that we need to really advance patient safety and advance the care that's being delivered. So I think when it comes to how we structure this, I think we could probably get consensus to have guidelines that we absolutely should not be doing these things. And we probably should absolutely focus on this area. So I think some general guidelines there are really important to have. I also think that to do this well, we need to do it through public-private partnerships. I don't think we can rely on the federal government to do all of this. One is it can generally be a slow process. And AI is moving faster than anything I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. The adoption, the use, et cetera, it's just, it's off the charts. And so if we're going to rely on a federal or state government process for guiding this, it's just going to be too slow. It's going to be way too slow. And so the way to address that, I think, is really through public-private partnership, where we have industry-led initiatives that are bringing other key stakeholders to the table in a highly collaborative and coordinated format to make it so that we can drive the advancements that we want to drive. And I think that's the, that's the way that this really should be moving. Thankfully, there have been some collaboratives that have already been stood up. You know, Microsoft is, has led a few of these collaboratives. There's others that have led several collaboratives. And these collaboratives, especially in healthcare, they're focused on thinking through how do we ensure the, the quality of different, let's say, AI systems or algorithms for clinical use? And how do we start pooling data from different populations so that we have a diverse data set so that when these AI algorithms are being developed, they can be built on those data sets, they can be tested against those data sets, et cetera. Those kinds of things are only, I think, going to be doable through a public-private partnership. Those things have started to get set up. Some of them are well on their way. I think that's fantastic. And the other piece of that is, as we were talking about earlier, we have to get healthcare facilities and healthcare systems thinking about participation in this process and active participation so that we don't have just a, another inequity that occurs, which I think has happened in the EHR market, by the way, which is that those healthcare facilities that are well-resourced can adopt the best electronic health record. They can continue to invest money to upgrade it and keep it safe. Those that are 
less well-resourced, maybe we'll have an inferior electronic health record system, cannot upgrade it all the time, et cetera. That has direct consequences for patient safety. The same thing is going to happen in the artificial intelligence, the AI space. And so we need to at least create kind of the floor here and say, these are the minimum safeguards that we're going to have in place. This is what's going to be acceptable across all healthcare facilities and making sure everybody's meeting that. That is something we want to establish, I think, pretty quickly. And we want to make sure that healthcare facilities, as we talked about this knowledge gap, really have the basic knowledge to understand what is going to be safe, what's not going to be safe, and how they can monitor it. So I think those are going to be some really key pieces for us. Well, you've convinced me just in the last two conversations we've had, I'm I'm already all in on this. I mean, I think and shaping the narrative around, you know, what's real, what's fiction, what's myth will help everybody understand. And like, to your point, jump in if they do have the skills, they're at that mid-level career and they're wondering, what does this mean for me? It means that you get to learn more. It means that yeah. your job may be new and different. And for some people that's scary, but once you get past that initial fear, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a whole new world. I mean, it's a great opportunity to shape the future. So, and- absolutely, and, and you have such a great perspective on this, you know. And I, and, and I hope that people listening to this will gravitate towards what you're saying and recognize that there's an opportunity here, and we have to we really have to look at it that way. We have to make the mental shift of saying this isn't something that should be fear shouldn't drive fear. We shouldn't panic go like just go deeper into our current skill sets. We have to look at this as an opportunity and 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 latch all into this and figure out the right ways of integrating into the things that we're doing and take the, the best parts of it. And you know, you, you had also brought this up earlier and I'll, I'll just highlight this from a maybe a different lens. You sort of had brought up that the robots aren't here yet, haven't taken control yet. There's a big area of research inside of human factors and the Department of Defense, et cetera, called human systems integration and joint cognitive systems. And the idea is really pretty basic. The work is difficult. What we ideally want to be doing is we want to take all the things that humans are good at and preserve it and complement it with the computers and the artificial intelligence that can take care of all the things that we're not so good at and can take care of the things that we don't like to do. And that's the concept of human systems integration. That's the concept of joint cognitive systems. And so I brought up that car example earlier of the blind spot detection. So how did that, and you can think about that maybe quite as artificial intelligence, but you can think about that as computer smarts, right? So I think most of us would welcome that. I can't imagine many people saying, I don't want this technology in my car. And how did that technology come to be? Well, it came to be because the automotive industry, along with others, looked at the crash data, accident data to say, wait a minute, humans are not very good at looking over their left shoulder and right shoulder to check their blind spot. Not to mention it's difficult for us to do. It's not a pleasant movement. And so how can we address this? We can build smarts into the car that can have a light flash or something else so that when there's an object in our blind spot, I know. And if I try and deviate over when that object is there, the car won't let me. To me, that's the perfect example of a, of a joint cognitive system or human systems integration. It's taking things that we're not very good at, and it's building in the technologies to help protect us. You talk about the younger generation. I have a 16-year-old niece who just is started driving. And I, the backup camera in my car, I'm like, oh, my God, I, how, do we, how do we live without this before? <laughs> she, you know, she drove us somewhere the other day, and she's just like 
zipping down the driveway, looking, not even, and I'm constantly still looking over my shoulder. Because, I do the same thing. <laughs> you know I mean? Even though I have it, it's a I know. Kids are like, so that's where the tipping point, well, I think will even accelerate more is when the people who've grown up with this technology and struggle when you tell them, get a dictionary, because it's like, oh my God, that's the hard way. You just Google yeah. it. I don't know if my niece and nephew have carried around a textbook. I mean, everything was in the palm of their hands since they were kids. But yeah. so, I mean, I'm excited to see where that's going to go too. But yeah, I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. As you were talking about the car, I'm thinking, well, Avatar, you know, who wouldn't want an exoskeleton that can help them hang Christmas lights? You should have seen me like walking around my tree, right? Oh, man. Yeah, good times. Good times ahead. I hope we're around to see them. I hope it, you know. It, I hope so too. I think we will be. I think we will be. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I just want to, you know, give you the opportunity. Is there anything that's keeping you up at night related to your job or to, you know, AI or med tech or safety in the, especially the EMR space? Well, I think we've really covered it, which is, and I'll just, you know, highlight it very quickly again in a sentence is, is this kind of workforce gap. I think we really all have to ramp up our knowledge quickly and get these infrastructures put in place quickly. If we, if we use the, the electron, what we've learned from the electronic health record and then carry that forward into artificial intelligence, it took us a really long time to even get some of the most basic safety precautions and get things figured out in the electronic health record. And we're not even fully there. And that was, you know, really that built 2009, 2012, when it accelerated, we're 10, 11 years post. We still don't have it figured out. And now here comes AI. If we are going to take another decade to figure out AI from a safety perspective, we're in a lot of trouble. And so we need to ramp up our, our knowledge now and we need to figure out some of the basic safety precautions, et cetera, to put in place now. That would be the big one for me. Well, real quick, I know we're at time here, but and not to plug Google, but Google has been really good about open source, everything, mm -hmm. you know, equaling the playing field. They just released, uh, maybe just, I don't know how long ago, nine AI courses that are for anybody who wants to learn. So oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I could chat with you, you know, all morning. But Likewise. Thanks, Tracy. This is great. And I uh, really appreciate being able to talk about this. Raj, thanks so much for being with us on Lit Help today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and, and hear what you're up to. And I think today's conversation is timely, given just the incredible focus we have on generative artificial intelligence that's in the healthcare workplace, but work that you've been doing for so long now to really make sure that the uh, patient safety principles don't get lost in the, uh, the technology that's in the environment.